Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church. As you've heard, we have all the campuses worshiping here today. So today is a special service. And would you believe this? This is also the final worship service of the year. So let us be grateful to God for bringing us to the end of another year. And let us look forward with great anticipation for what he has in store for us for the new year. But this time, I want to welcome those who are joining us online. All of December, our sermons have focused on the major characters in the Christmas story. So, so far, we have looked at Christmas through the eyes of Joseph, Mary, Simeon, and Herod. Today, I'm going to bring that uh, series to a close with a focus on another prominent set of characters in the Christmas story. It's been said that St. Francis of Assisi created the first nativity scene in order to promote the true meaning of Christmas. His idea caught on and a new Christmas tradition was born. If you look at most uh, Christmas nativity scenes today, you will see the baby Jesus with his mother Mary and Joseph, his earthly father. And along with that, you see some uh, cute-looking animals, cows, sheep, donkeys. The stable is uh, surprisingly nice and clean, no poop or dung. It looks thoroughly sanitized, well-lit, sometimes with colorful lights. Then you have the shepherds. Uh, you know, they've been personally called by their heavenly host to witness this spectacle. And then you see three men wearing colorful, velvety robes along with their camels, and they bow before the baby Jesus. One of the popular Christmas carols that we sang today describes them as three kings following a star, traveling with gifts from a far-off place. Now, we're going to talk about these guys today. Who are they? What is the significance of their coming? And more importantly, what does this mean to us today? Answers to these questions will mess with our traditional view of Christmas celebration. You know, our cultural Christmas is about a quiet little family affair, a time for us to come together with our loved ones and exchange gifts with one another, sit around the living room drinking eggnog. You know, while it is good to have these uh, precious family times, and I do love eggnog and I miss them already, that is not the message of Christmas. Christmas is first and foremost a challenge to spread the good news of Christ's coming to the world. This message is universal. This is good news of great joy for all people. And within the Christmas narrative is an impending call to take this message of the Savior's birth to those who are still living in darkness. So as we come to the end of a year and look to what lies ahead in 2019, that is the challenge I want to present to us today as a church, to partner with God in what He is passionate about, bringing people to Jesus. The text that we're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to ask us to stand as we read this uh, section of Scripture. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And they had heard the king. They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Lord, we thank you that you truly satisfy the spiritual aspirations of all people who seek you. Thank you, God, for this inspired story of uh, men from far-off nations coming to the worship of Jesus. And thank you that the same Jesus is here with us as the risen, exalted Savior. And we pray that you will come and speak to us, that our hearts will be ready to receive this challenge from your word. And Lord, you will come and minister to us in the power of your spirit. We commit this time into your hands and to your leading. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In a book with a strange title, Napoleon's Hemorrhoids and Other Small Events That Changed History, the author Phil Mason documents dozens of small happenings over the centuries, many of which appear to be very insignificant when it happened, but seem to change the course of history. Uh, the Christmas story could easily top that list. When Jesus was born to a teenage couple, conceived outside of wedlock, born in the little town of Bethlehem on an ordinary night, in a stable of all places because there was no room anywhere else, who would have thought that this one small trivial event in history would so radically change the course of our world? The passage that we read gives us a brief glimpse of the universal implications of Christmas. Our text, our text begins with these words in verse 1. Uh, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the word behold is not a word we use in modern English. Now, you don't say to your spouse when you get home from work, behold, I'm home. 
See, that is why most contemporary Bible translations actually ignore this word or sometimes translate it as uh, look or listen. And in doing so, they miss out something. Now, according to Christian theologian Wayne Grudem, behold in the New Testament means pay attention. What follows is especially important or surprising. It's the writer's way of getting our attention, a literary device that helps us to pay close attention to what follows next. So why is Matthew saying, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem? What is the surprise element here? After all, we are so used to these characters. Don't these wise men show up every Christmas in their colorful attire? We today are so familiar with them that we miss out on that surprise element. But not so with the first century readers, for they would have gasped at this. Matthew is saying, hello, did you see who came to meet Jesus? The people who were magi came to see him. The word magi is magoi in Greek, and translated in some Bible versions as wise men. And basically, this is a reference to pagan astrologers. They were the dubious characters who dabbled in dark arts. Out of the word magi, we get our word magic. And when we refer to magic here, we are not talking about the guy who performs tricks by pulling a rabbit out of a hat. We're talking about black magic and wizards, dark spiritual stuff. This is forbidden territory. You know, growing up in India, astrology was everywhere. We had a family astrologer who came every year to our home, and he would look at our horoscopes, do palm readings, and come up with predictions for the year. And we will hang on to every word that he said. I was not a Christian at the time, neither was my family, but today I see the futility behind astrology. But historically, you can see that astrology has existed for centuries. And it was common in the ancient days for people like the Magi to serve in the king's courts. They were leading figures who were consulted when the king needed supernatural help. For instance, the same term, wise men or Magi, appears in the book of Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, he called the wise men of Babylon and sought their help in interpreting the dream. Once again, you see them being mentioned in the book of Daniel when the king Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. And once again, he calls the wise men to help him interpret that writing. So it is quite possible that the wise men mentioned here in the Gospel of Matthew would have been from Babylon or Persia. The influence of Daniel and the large Jewish community that lived in those places would have given these men access to the Old Testament, which all along talked about the coming of the Messiah, the ruler of Israel. Now, this is also a good time to correct some common misconceptions. There are some things that we believe as a result of traditions and not necessarily because it's in the Bible. Uh, First of all, the wise men were not kings. 
They were astrologers come wizards. Secondly, Matthew doesn't say there are three wise men. He just says wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we don't know how many were part of that contingent. Now another common mistake is to assume that the wise men came at the night of Jesus' birth. So our nativity scenes have the wise men along with the shepherds. And that is clearly not the case. If you look at our text in uh, Matthew 2, uh, verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Did you notice what that verse says? The wise men met Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in a house. By now it appears that they were living in a house in Bethlehem as opposed to a cattle stall. So the family looks a bit more settled. I bet this information is going to mess with your nativity scenes next Christmas. (laughs) That's if you remember this sermon. I know that's a big ask. (laughs) Here's another observation. Jesus is referred to in that text as a child. The word used there refers to a toddler, not a newborn baby. So once again, we have to speculate here. When the Magi arrived, Jesus could have been a few weeks old, a few months old, certainly less than two years old, because Herod ordered the killing of all babies two years and under in and around Bethlehem. Well, now that we have cleared some of the misconceptions, let's go back to Matthew's main point as he talks about, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. These are not respected kings. These are not the Jewish religious elite. They are not the Romans with their pomp and glory. The people who came to meet the Messiah are the last people you would think would make that list. Experts in astrology, magic, and divination. These violators of the Old Testament were one of the first ones to worship Jesus. That is the surprise element that Matthew is bringing to his original audience. You know, it's fascinating that astrology, stargazing, divination is over and over condemned in the Old Testament. God uses harsh words to criticize those who practice them as well as those who go seeking for them. And let me make this clear. God still doesn't approve these practices. The wise men following a star and coming to uh, meet baby Jesus is not an approval of astrology. Far from it. What is astrology? The root word is astro, which means star. Astrology is the study of stars. It claims that celestial things like stars and planets exert an influence on human destiny. And guess what? Astrology has made huge inroads into the Western world and is extremely popular at this time of the year when we are about to enter a new year. Major newspapers and magazines, websites and social media pages offer horoscope readings. An article I was uh, reading spoke about how much our young people are into astrology. You know, it is so easy for some of you to 
look to these sources to provide you with assurance over the uncertainty surrounding a new year. The problem with astrology is it gives us a false sense of security. Rather than trusting God, we trust our horoscopes, zodiac signs, the position of the planets, lines in our palm, or tarot card readings. Oh, consulting these things are a violation of God's way of communicating to us. Any source of spiritual guidance outside of the Bible, outside of prayer, and the Christian community is to be outrightly rejected. And if you're someone here who is drawn to seek for shortcuts like astrology and horoscopes, I want you to know that the planets don't control the destiny of your life. No psychic can tell you what is going to happen next or solve your problems. They surely cannot guarantee you joy, peace, or good times. But hear me. The God who made the heavens and the earth, the stars and the planets, the one who brought the entire cosmos into existence is the one who holds this new year in his hands. You don't need astrology. You need Jesus. And if you know Jesus and you know the promises in his word, you can experience true security and you can say with confidence, no matter what your circumstances, it is well with my soul. Now going back to the Magi, they were lawbreakers in the eyes of God. They were despised and shunned. They were idolaters who worshipped false gods. And they came seeking for Jesus. And you see the contrast in our passage where Herod, the one who was on the throne of Judah, wanted nothing to do with the Messiah. In fact, his only interest in Jesus was so he could get rid of him. As Pastor Henry pointed out in his Christmas Eve message, Herod just hardened his heart. He saw Jesus as a rival who will mess with his life, so he closed the door of his heart to Jesus. Now, there's another group of people in our text whom you think would be spiritually sensitive. They are the religious leaders of Israel. As the Magi came looking for the king who was born, they came to the capital city, Jerusalem, assuming that that's where they would find him. Now, Herod is clearly threatened at the prospect of a new ruler who would be a rival to his throne. Now look at the verses 3 to 6 here. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law were the religious experts. The chief priests were from the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron, and performed key tasks in the temple. 
The teachers of the law, or scribes, were the professionals widely respected for their knowledge and religious conduct. But they were the ones who memorized the whole Torah. They knew the Old Testament inside out. Both groups of people were people with spiritual pedigree. And what is amazing is they even knew the place where the Messiah would be born. When Herod inquired of them, they didn't have to search. They didn't have to say, come back tomorrow, we will study diligently and come up with the answers. In fact, they knew the answer. Their theology was spot on, impeccable. If they were tested on their doctrinal correctness, they would have passed in flying colors. And yet they were content with all of that knowledge and never sought to look for baby Jesus. Now that kind of an indifferent attitude is actually stunning. The pagans made such a a long, arduous journey, traveling through difficult terrain, looking for Jesus because they saw something in the sky while the religious leaders who had the Old Testament and all of the spiritual truths at their fingertips would not travel even five miles. That's the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They would not even travel such a short distance to receive the long-awaited Messiah who would deliver Israel. This is yet another confirmation that mere head knowledge alone is not enough. Biblical literacy and theological knowledge, as important as it is, don't always define spiritual maturity. And sometimes we can hide behind pious verbiage and spiritual rituals and never have an authentic, life-changing experience with Jesus. You can wax eloquent on the theology of prayer and have no prayer life of your own. You can present a convincing argument for justification by faith and never be justified before God. You can read all the Christian latest bestsellers and attend big conferences and still be dry and crusty on the inside. See, faith is not a set of ideas to be mastered, but its proof is seen in how we live our life. And it pains me when I encounter people from the church who have such head knowledge, deposits of Bible truths on their head, but no experiential transforming knowledge of Christ. And I shudder whenever I see traces of this in my own life. We don't need just dry intellectual knowledge. We need hearts on fire, saturated by the Spirit of God and burning with love and passion for Jesus. That is authentic Christianity. John Wesley, the great preacher and founder of the Methodist Church, found himself in that very place. He had given mental assent to the doctrines of the faith, but his heart was far from Christ. He was trying hard to be saved by observing all the commandments through good deeds and piety. 
on his way to America as a missionary, the ship he was sailing ran into a storm. And Wesley found that his faith offered him no comfort at the prospect of death. And this experience shook him so deeply that he started to question if he ever possessed true faith. As Wesley confessed his struggles to his Moravian friend, Peter Bowler, his advice to him was, preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. Wesley acted on that advice and shared the gospel with someone in prison. And in front of his eyes, he witnessed a radical change in this man. That change which Wesley himself as a pious man was struggling to receive all along. Forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ alone. And John Wesley soon had an encounter with the living God. And this is what Wesley wrote in his journal right after his conversion. His famous words. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Our hearts need to be warmed, not just our minds. That was the problem of the priests and the religious leaders during Jesus' time. And that is the problem with so many people who were raised in the church. Wizards wanted to worship Jesus. The religious leaders were indifferent. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see this being played out over and over again. His ministry attracted the wrong crowd from the society's point of view. And the religious leaders were his strongest critic and wanted nothing to do with him. And if we are not careful, we can forget who Jesus came for. We can be tempted to think some people are so far from God that they are beyond hope and forget the fact that Jesus came for people such as these. Jesus continues to challenge our stereotypes. Hear what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in the words of our author Philip Yancey, the more unsavory the characters, the more at ease they seemed to feel around Jesus. So the magi, the worst kind of sinners possible, heard about the baby, they went immediately to Bethlehem, and look at their response in verses 9 to 11. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the star has always been a mystery in the story. What kind of star was this? 
Some have called this a comet, supernova, or an astronomical spectacle. You know, it's hard to come up with scientific explanations. This seems to be a supernatural phenomenon. It appears this is a special light God created to get the attention of the guys whose job was to watch the stars. You know, all of this speaks of the extent God would go to get someone's attention. And this is not some random half facade episode, but God was behind this. Pastor Matt Woodley writes these words, God used the very star that the Magi worshipped to lead them to Jesus. That's the mercy of God to use our idols to lead us to the truth. Think about this. We make idols out of sex, pleasure, our career, our good looks, money. And these very idols leave us empty and point us to the fact that there is an insatiable desire within us that only God can satisfy. You know, as you read this narrative, we may be enamored by the pursuit of pagan astrologers coming from such a, a long distance to meet King Jesus. But what is even more mind-blowing is the idea of a God who would go searching for law-breaking, star-gazing pagan astrologers. That's the passion of God reflected in the Christmas story. God was not waiting for us to reach out to him. He took the initiative to come down to us. That's what sets the Christian faith apart from all other worldviews. Before the Magi came seeking for Jesus, God was at work long ago in their hearts, wooing them to the truth. It was God who caused this body of light to rise in the sky just to get the Magi's attention. He spoke to them through the religious leaders and pointed to them the truth from the Bible. And he even led them to the precise house where Jesus was. The Bible tells us that God reveals himself to a sincere seeker. And that's what we see being played out in this narrative. When the Magi finally came to the house where Mary and Joseph lived, they bowed down and worshipped baby Jesus. Now that's a significant word, the word worship. It signifies Jesus' surpassing authority. Only God is worthy of worship in the Old Testament. But now Jesus receives worship even as a baby. You cannot deny the fact that Jesus is God. The Magi brought three gifts, which is why we assume they are three in number, which is a faulty assumption, by the way. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were gifts that were fitting for a royal king. Now, some see behind these gifts powerful, symbolic truths that clarify the identity of Jesus. Gold is a precious metal. It points to the kingship of Jesus. Frankincense was an incense used in the temple, pointing to Jesus' high priestly ministry. 
And myrrh is a spice that was used to anoint the dead. So even as a baby, the shadow of the cross loomed large over Jesus because he came to die for the sins of the world. And when these men bowed down in worship, you see the beginning of fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies. In fact, this is the heartbeat of the Old Testament. Let me give you a few verses here. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Psalm 96, verses 7 to 9. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. What is happening here in, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is indicative of what is about to unfold through God's kingdom launched by Jesus Christ. And it signifies that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the Lord and master of every people group. As the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so will the nations bring their worship to Jesus, recognizing his worth. And here, in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the mission of the church is outlined. If we grasp the message of Christmas, we will realize that this is a call to action. The nations need to hear the truth about Jesus. All people groups need to embrace Jesus in worship. And let me remind us, we live in an ethnically diverse city. The nations are all around us. And God has placed us in this mission field so through our witness, spiritual seekers from all backgrounds will come to understand that only Jesus is worthy of our worship. And I, t I can say this from personal experience. This year has been a fascinating year where I have seen people hungry for the gospel like I've never seen before in my ministry. I am simply amazed to see the opportunities and the doors the Lord has opened to proclaim the gospel to people of various backgrounds, various religions who are seeking for the one true God. All through the Old Testament, the mission of God for his people can be called come and see. Israel, as God's chosen people, ought to demonstrate God's character. So the world will come and take notice of who God is through Israel. The Canaanite nations had to come and see from Israel and learn from them. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon and was wowed by what she witnessed. In the same way, the wise men from the east, came to Bethlehem to see the newborn king. But towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus commands the church 
to go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. The emphasis of the church's mission is no more come and see, but God's call for the church is to go and tell. If we understand the significance of who entered this world on Christmas Day, then we have an obligation to tell the nations about this good news so they too can come to the worship of the one we worship, so they too can become disciples of Jesus. You know, I pray that that would be our priority as a church for this new year. I'm simply blown away by the favor God has given Center Street Church. Hundreds of people have come to our church just this month of December during this Christmas season to hear the good news of Jesus. And that is only because of God's hand upon our church. No one else can take credit for it. And the only reason I believe God has his hand upon this church is because this church, you, have taken a stand to proclaim the undiluted, uncompromising message of the gospel to the world. And I tell you, if we stay true to that commitment, to take Jesus to our city, our nation, and this world, then God will keep his side of the covenant. He will bless us and make us a blessing to the nations. The star of Bethlehem led the wise men who were far off to Jesus. And today... The church needs to be that star. God's people need to be like stars wherever he has placed us and lead people to Jesus. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. The world we live in is dark, and it's getting darker by the day. But that's okay, because light shines brightest in darkness, and the darkness can never overpower it. So our calling is to bathe this world with the light of Jesus. And that's my prayer for every individual, every family, every campus, every community group tied to our church, that we will be lighthouses pointing people to the Savior so they too will come to experience him like we do. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to an end. Christmas story tells us that God is faithful to his promises. And God has indeed promised us how this world will all come to an end. And we know the God who kept his promise and sent Jesus at his first coming will keep his promise and send him in at the right time. And our responsibility is to continue working for the Lord. Engage 
in the harvest that he has given to us. And even as we come to the end of a year, I want to give a moment for you to reflect on the year that has gone by and just take time to see the highlights of your year, the lowlights of this year as well, and commit this new year into God's hands. Ask his presence to go ahead of you and make ways for you. Pray for us as a church that as we step into a new year, this will indeed be a year of harvest. May we see multitudes of people coming to know Jesus through our ministries. So let's maintain a moment of silence and after that I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are humbled to know that you came down for us, that you left the glories of heaven. You did not hold on to your privileges, but you emptied yourself to become one among us in order to redeem us so we can be part of the family of God. Today, we love you because you first loved us that you pursued us even when we were far away from you to bring us to the knowledge of the truth, to open our eyes to who you are. We pray today, Lord Jesus, that we will not hold this news to ourselves, that we will freely declare the goodness of God in our life, that each one of us who are part of Center Street Church will have a testimony to share to the nations. They, they too will come to know you in a personal way. Lord, we want our lives to count in light of eternity. So help us to embrace the mission that you have given to us. That the heartbeat of the Bible, of, of the nations coming to the worship of the living God will become our heartbeat, will become the heartbeat of this church. And even as we enter into a new year, I pray, oh God, that you will go ahead of us, that you will prepare the way for us, God, we bring our lives under submission to you. Establish your plans and purposes for this new year in each of our lives and in the life of our church. That Jesus will be magnified, glorified, exalted, and lifted higher in our church, in the city, and all around the world. And we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. We ask all this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And even as you leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may abide with each and every one of us, both now and into 2019 and forevermore. Amen.